0: Is it true that he show business in a year? No, not as far as we know. It must be a chance or something. I do believe that if you dream about a relative who's crossed over, then that is them saying hi. I really do think that. really disgusted and hide and he just tries to stay away from people i can relate to that <laughs> hey folks strange music stories back again with another weird instance in rock history for you and this is the third episode on this podcast channel i'm your host with the most chris <laughs> i'm sorry that was incredibly cheesy in fact i'm going to refrain from making corny jokes this episode because what i'm about to discuss is very serious So, the title of this episode is called The Station, and I'm sure some people will be able to guess what I'm referring to without me divulging any more. Also, in addition, I have to slap an audio discretion warning on this one, since there is some very graphic imagery. You have been warned. Okay. So, once again, for those that don't have the faintest clue as to what I'm referring to, I'd like to shed some backstory into the topic before diving headfirst into the main event. Here we go. Great White is a hard rock band that was formed in 1977 in Los Angeles, California. The band was founded by guitarist Mark Kendall and vocalist Jack Russell. Kendall wanted Russell to join his band, seeing as how it was originally his idea to put it together, apparently. Initially, the band would be called Highway, then changed to Live Wire, then changed even more simply to Wires, and Side Note. I love how there's always stories within stories as I'm trying to get to the main topic. Hold on to your pants. This one's a real doozy. So as mentioned previously, Russell and Kendall started the band together. Unfortunately, things were not meant to last very long in the beginning with Mr. Russell. As in 1979, he apparently shot a living maid with a gun in a botched robbery attempt. And as a result, he was almost charged with eight years in the slammer. He recounts the story at great length, and believe me, it's a long narrative, but interesting nonetheless. Russell recalls, quote, "'Oh yeah, I did shoot a maid,' unquote. He goes on to describe, "'This was back. i just turned 18. I was really into coke. "'I didn't have any money. I ripped off anybody I could by conning them. "'I would get Visine and put it in a dropper bottle and tell people it was L-2-5, you know, liquid LSD.' And the thing about bisine back in those days, it was just like LSD. It would glow under a black light. And I was like, see, it's the real deal. And they are like, yeah. People started getting wise because they weren't getting high. You know, I remember living with my bass player up in Glendora, also in California. And I came home and one of the other roommates was like, you got to get out of here. And I'm like, why? And he's like, there were a couple guys with guns that came here looking for you. I'm like, okay, time for me to exit stage right. So I headed back to my mom and dad's house. This friend of mine came over, the guy that introduced me to Mark, actually, and said, dude, I know this guy. He's got a ton of cocaine. You could go in there and rip him off easy. I'm like, okay. And he had this other guy ready to go. So I borrowed a gun from this friend of mine. and We went over there and we came in the house with ski masks and was like, give us your f- coke or we'll blow your head off. I had a knife and the other guy had the gun. I will never forget this. The guy was like, not again. I wanted to laugh so bad. You know, poor guy, you know, we took all the coke and took off running across the lawn. There were people across the street. They had kids, you know, and they were screaming because two guys were running down the street with a bag of blow and a gun and a knife. We dive in the car and take off. I was like, wow, this is a no-brainer. Easy way to score drugs and get paid. I got some intel on another guy that I used to go to school with, and the deal was he had a bunch of blow. So me and a friend of mine were planning on going there and doing the same thing. So I borrowed the gun again, and it was a twenty two revolver. We kept it loaded when we did this only because when you point a revolver at somebody, you can see if it's loaded or not. So that is the only reason I had it loaded. So we went to this guy's house. I smoked some PCP before I went in the house, which was not a very good idea. I walked in the house and blacked out. So what I'm about to tell you now is what I know from the court transcripts because I have no recollection till I woke up. I'll get to that. Apparently I walked in the house, I remember that part, I walked into the house and I remember looking outside, there was a big glass door from the front door, you could see out into the backyard, there was a pool, and there was a maid out there, and she was watering the plants. So after this, I don't re- really remember, it gets kind of sketchy, so they said I walked out and asked the maid, where's the coke? She thought I was a friend the guys playing a joke on her. She goes, no coke, just pepsi, go to the refrigerator, help yourself. She was a Vietnamese lady, and when I read that, I had to laugh, because at the time, it was the Saturday Night Live thing. So I'm asking the maid where the cocaine is. She starts squirting me with the hose and starts wrestling with me for whatever reason. I don't know. The gun went off and hit the concrete and ricocheted, you know. The father was down the hill with the horses, and he said he looked up and saw this guy with a ski mask and a gun, kind of like standing up wrestling with the maid. He said he went up the hill and grabbed his briefcase full of money and locked himself in the bathroom. Russell continues, quote, Yeah, what happened next? I guess we went in the house because she ran away and somehow got in the bathroom with him. They said I was bashing on the door and said I put huge cracks in the solid oak door. Next thing they said, I shot through the door. The bullet went through the door, hit a St. Christopher medallion by her heart and went into her shoulder, saving her life and mine. I woke up on my knees, looking at a door with a gun between my legs, and I'm like, what the hell? Where am I? I had no clue. Next thing I hear is, you're surrounded by the SWAT team. I hear a helicopter, and I'm like, that's right, I'm here to rob dope. I know, I'll unload the gun, and it won't be that big of a deal. I mean, it was still a big deal, it just wouldn't be as big of a deal. Even though I was unloading a gun and stuffing bullets down the side of the waterbed. I was still wasted and I didn't realize I had shot two rounds. I walked outside and I threw the gun on the ground and they all tackled me and were punching me and shit. And they were like, what did you shoot her for? And I'm like, what? What are you talking about? They told me I shot somebody. I heard my dad's voice say, one of these days you're going to get all hopped up on that stuff and you're going to shoot somebody. I used to be like, what are you talking about, dad? I don't even have a gun. How would I ever shoot somebody? That's ridiculous. I'm like, oh, my God, I shot somebody. I went to court after all this stuff, and they gave me eight years. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm done. My career is over. Everything is over. Of course, it was like, my God, I hurt somebody. I shot somebody. But on the other hand, it's just that's what you get. I was just happy she was alive because I felt bad enough shooting somebody. But it was weird because I don't remember doing it. I passed out in the courtroom, and I woke up in the back. I remember being in the holding cell and waiting to go, and my attorney said, What happened? And I said, I can't believe I got eight years. He was like, Don't worry about that. You won't be doing eight years. You're going to YA. I go, What do you mean? He said, You're going to CYA, California Youth Authority. That's the step between juvenile hall and prison. He said, They'll send it to you when you get there. They factor on these things and resend it to you. So I do my psych evaluation and I went in front of a board. They have two boards a regular board for lesser crimes with two people on it, and a full board with four people on it with more intense crimes. So I get the regular board. There are two guys sitting there, and prior to this, I hear about a drug rehab program. You could go in there for 18 months. It's a whack job program. They shave your head. It's just crazy, but they can cut your time in half. So I really wanted to get into it. I'm going, I want to get into this program. I get up in front of the board, and we talk, and questions get asked and answered. And they say, well, three years. I'm like, wow, I have to do a year and a half before I'm even eligible to go to the rehab place? But then the guy says, Hold on, you're a full-blown case We can't sentence you We are a regular board, you're gonna have to be sentenced when you go up north Which, by the way, is where the drug rehab program is I'm like, cool, I got another shot at this On the morning of my 19th birthday, the 16th at 6am They said, okay, we're shipping you to Preston now so, somehow they had the paperwork wrong and they had me as a flight risk. So, here I am on my birthday with my legs and hands shackled, and they give me a sack of lunch now. Have you ever tried to eat with your hands shackled? Not that I didn't deserve it, but you get my point. So, they put me in a lodge with all these mediocre criminals. You know, guys that aren't the worst, but still bad enough because they all like riots and people getting stabbed. And guys saying, You better get over there and punch that dude or we're going to stab you. And then they add time to your sentence. So, I was like, I need to get out of here. Or I'm going to end up catching time. So, I go before the board and they're like, 21 months. I mean, that's awesome, but I mean, that gives me three months before I can even go to this drug program. I don't want to catch time. The drug program guy says, Yeah, we'll take you when you've served 18 months. So, I'm like, Wow, this is a miracle. The next day they come up and they say, We've made a decision. That in the first time in history, we're going to take you down with 21 months and you'll be out in 11. I mean, talk about divine intervention. This is like the miracles of miracles. I was thanking God. It's just a story of divine intervention. I mean, I knew at six years old I was going to be a rock star. It was a totally spiritual experience. It was laid out for me in very vivid detail that I was going to be a successful musician. So anyway, I got out in 11 months and got back with the band And like a year and a half, two years later, I signed my first record deal So that's where that came from It's definitely a fact, unquote And that's the end of that passage So this guy literally just shot a maid and got out of jail scot-free So let's see how this affects him It would seem that Karma at this point definitely doesn't have any part to play But maybe it does down the road We shall find out Okay, moving on So, after Kendall threw a going-away party for Russell's, since it would appear now he would not be spending a lot of time singing in the band anymore, he started over, and in doing so, turned to a drummer named Tony Richards, and then to a bassist named Don Costa. They also recruited a female singer by the name of Lisa Baker, who they played their first real gig with in 1979. At this point, they called the band Dante Fox, and the shows they were playing were in Los Angeles and Orange County. Complete tangent, but I always think of the reality TV show American Chopper when I hear of Orange County for some reason. Let me know in the comments if any of you have ever watched this 2003 reality TV show. Anyway, so singer Lisa Baker left the band after six months and then hired another singer named Butch Say, who actually didn't stay around for very long because, surprise, Jack Russell was released from being incarcerated. So, upon being released from the penitentiary, he auditioned and got accepted into the band. The band played their first show with Russell at the Troubadour nightclub in Hollywood, California, which is also a venue where tons of other famous acts have played. For those that are interested, there's a long list you can look up. Anyway, so the band recorded a number of demos and then hired Alan Niven to manage the band. Interestingly enough, though, he also managed Guns N' Roses. They changed their name from Dante Fox to Great White because apparently a kid saw Kendall stick his head out of a car window and say, There goes Great White, referring to Kendall wearing everything white. Supposedly, he had natural white blonde hair, a white jumpsuit, a white Telecaster, and white Capesio shoes. In 1982, the band would go through yet another lineup change, where drummer Tony Richards and bassist Don Costa would leave and be replaced by a drummer named Gary Holland and a bassist named Lorne Black. They released a five-song EP Nevin got KMET, a Los Angeles radio station, and KLOS FM, another radio station, to shuffle these songs in rotation at times. As would be expected from the radio plays, the band went from drawing 100 people to local venues, such as Perkins Palace, The Palace, and Country Club, to drawing thousands of people. They finally got signed to EMI America in 1983 and released their first studio album in 1984. The album was entitled *Eponymous*, and immediately after the release, they started touring with Whitesnake in the United Kingdom, and even opened for Judas Priest on their U.S. and Canada tour. Great White released their second studio album, entitled Shot in the Dark, on March 1986. And before even this previously mentioned event, they had yet another line of change, thereby replacing drummer Gary Holland with Audie Despera god i've heard of bands having many lineup changes but this is ridiculous <laughs> all right moving on around this time they got signed to Capitol records and recruited another member named michael lardy who was their session keyboards for a while apparently this is yet another instance of a lineup change hey i guess it's a model to follow though if it is broken fix it They would soon release their third studio album, entitled Once Bitten, on June 29, 1987, and this album would solidify their mainstream international commercial success. The breakout hits on the album were Rock Me and Save Your Love. The album also went platinum in 1988. They recorded three more studio albums in the late 80s and early 90s. The fourth album was entitled Twice Shy, and was released on April 12th, 1989. The fifth album was entitled Hooked, and was released on February 26th, 1991. And then their sixth studio album was called Psycho City, and that was released on September 14th, 1992. On October 25th, 1993, they released a compilation album called The Best of Great White, from 1986 to 1992. Eventually, Great White would part ways with Capitol Records and finish their seventh studio album, entitled Sail Away, on May 10th, 1994, with another record company called Zoo Entertainment. Now, if you were thinking this band would be maxed out of material by the seventh studio album, think again. They released an eighth studio album, entitled Let It Rock, on May 21st, 1996, with yet another record company named Imago Records. My God, I've heard of being prolific, but this band completely embodies that word. Gotta respect the constant hard work. And as would be expected from such a strenuous constant workflow between recording new albums and touring, members of the band needed a break. So on January 20th of 2000, Mark Kendall announced that he was taking a hiatus from Great White. At this announcement, a few other members decided to leave the band completely, including Jeremy Artie Desbrow and now bassist Sean McNabb. They left Columbia Records, which I assume was their label at this point. And on November 5th, 2001, Jack Russell stated that the band was officially breaking up. If this was to be the end for the band, which may have been for the best, as the main topic for this episode may reveal, then certainly they had a great ride. Really astounding to learn how successful they were. Honestly, I didn't know much about their music, but they clearly worked very hard for everything. Moving on. Everyone in the band came back to do a farewell show on December 31st, 2001, at the Galaxy Theater in Santa Ana, California. So, as I've already alluded, if you thought this was the end for Great White, you would once again be very mistaken. Russell's and Kendall attempted to pursue solo careers, but found they weren't drawing many people to their shows. In an attempt to amend this issue, the two paired up in early 2003 and played classic songs from Great White. Since not every member decided to reunite, they called the band Jack Russell's Great White. Okay, folks, now we get to the main story about the station nightclub. The station was a small-sized concert venue that was built in 1946 and located in West Warwick, Rhode Island. It was 4,484 square feet in size, and the licensed maximum capacity was 404 people. Apparently, it was remodeled with the many changing owners who would sell it to new owners along the many years it was opened, and there was around several different owners total for what I found for my searches. On Thursday, February 20th, 2003, Jack Russell's Great White did a show at the station. This new incarnation of the band opened with their 1991 hit song entitled Desert Moon, and their tour manager at that time named Daniel Beecher decided to set up some fireworks or pyrotechnics at the back of the stage near the alcove where the drums were placed and these explosives were to fire right as they started with this opening song in addition he had no legal permit to do this the explosive devices that were used are named gerbs and they spray sparks at a length of 15 feet for 15 seconds in duration A total of three of these explosive devices were placed down and two on the flanks of the backstage that shot at a 45 degree angle and one in the middle that shot straight up. The band started Desert Moon and the gerbs went off only to ignite a fire on some acoustic foam quick side note interestingly enough actually if you were to watch the official music video of desert moon the main theme for the video seems to be fire given that the band is playing by a bunch of bonfires for nearly the entire music video not sure if that's a coincidence but nonetheless very eerie moving on the two gerbs that were firing at the sides were apparently the ones that started the fire from here we have a seemingly very tragic situation on our hands The acoustic foam that was ignited had two layers, the first of which was much more flammable and acted as the initial accelerant for the flames, and it is slash was called urethane foam. Above that was the second layer, which was harder to ignite but contained more deadly gases including carbon monoxide and hydrogen cyanide. This layer is slash was called polythene foam. Hydrogen-cyanide gas is no joke either, considering it was used in World War I for chemical warfare purposes. Also, apparently inhaling the burning polythene foam for only two to three times would result in loss of consciousness or death by suffocation. Yeah, my advice, don't make this the next social media challenge. (laughs) Excuse the dark humor. Twenty seconds after the sparks finished erupting from the devices, the flames started rapidly climbing up both sides of the walls at the very rear of the stage. Realizing the peril they are in, the band stopped playing, and it's at this point Russell's can be heard saying over the microphone, quote, Whoa, that's not good, unquote. Yeah, no shit, Jack. Very shortly after he makes this remark over the PA, the fire alarms are activated and can be heard very audibly. However, no fire sprinkler is turned on anywhere in the club. It took less than a minute for the entire stage to be completely engulfed in flames. The band and their escorts used the stage exit, which faced West, to leave the growing kindling hell. There were a total of 462 people present for the show, and as already mentioned, the maximum capacity was 404. So basically, the venue allowed more people to enter than they were legally allowed to do. Not prudent. There were four possible exits from the establishment for the staff and the clientele to use in order to escape. The first, which was already mentioned, was the stage exit, and that faced west when exiting. The second and third one, which were on the opposite side of the venue from the stage exit, were from the kitchen and the main bar. Both of these faced east when exiting and were adjacent to each other. The last exit everyone could use, and it would appear a lot of people did sadly, was the main entrance and this faced north when exiting. Based on the floor plan, it would also appear that the main entrance was very close to the stage, and this would not bode well for many, many people. Even more unfortunately, it would seem that the audience didn't have many options but to use the main entrance, causing it to be bottlenecked with throngs of people. One survivor named Gina Russo was with her boyfriend named Fred, and she recalls that ill-fated evening at around 10.30 p.m. She recollects, Quote, once they said Great White was going to be taking the stage, it truly was body to body, shoulder to shoulder. You couldn't turn around, you couldn't twist around. Um, There were a lot of people, unquote. She goes on to say, quote, the pyrotechnics went up. Because of where we were standing, Fred had said to me, look at that, something is wrong. There's a fire. There is something on fire. Gina Rousseau continues, There was a fire exit, maybe three or four steps to our right, and Fred just grabbed my hand and we went over to that exit. We got to the fire exit and there was a bouncer standing in front of the door, and Fred is screaming, there is a fire, open the door, there is a fire. The bouncer just stood there and said, no, the door is for the band only, it is club policy, unquote. The exit she was referring to was the stage exit, which I already mentioned a little bit. Wow, so security blocked off that exit to the crowd, even though it was clear everyone was in grave danger. Oh man, when it rains, it pours. I'm going to read some more of Gene Russo's narrative on this crazy night because it's just so unbelievable. Sounds like something out of hell. She continues, quote, We got a few steps without it being this mad rush, but then I think all of a sudden it's when the rest of the crowd realized at this point half the ceiling is on fire. The lights are starting to shatter from the heat. It looked like a stampede, something out of a National Geographic. It was just, let's just go to that door. If you came in it, you knew that door. Side note, I'm assuming she's referring to the main entrance. Okay, continuing with the quote. Quote, Fred's hand was on my back at one point, and all I remember was him pushing me and screaming, Go! And when I tried to turn around to find him, all I saw were a sea of people, and their heads were on fire. It was melting black rain, what I call black rain. Glass was shattering everywhere, and people's heads were on fire. And Fred was nowhere, and when he pushed me, he pushed me so hard that I actually made it to the front doorway. But at that point, I was stuck. I was wedged in between other people, and I can remember looking around and thinking, I'm done. My life is over. My breasts were getting shorter and shorter. It was getting hotter and hotter to breathe. The smoke, it was just black smoke. And the last thing I remember was hitting the hardwood floor, and that's my last memory of being in the club, unquote. Gina suffered from extensive third and fourth degree burns down to the bone all over her body, including fourth degree burns on her head, scorched lungs. Her left ear was completely burned off. In addition, her shoulders and arms and hands were extremely disfigured. The doctors put her into a medically induced coma from her critical injuries for 10 weeks. If you can believe it, Gina is one of the lucky ones, because of the 462 people who were present for the show, 100 died in the fire. And for those 250 people that survived, they suffered from critical burns, smoke inhalation, thermal trauma, trampling, and PTSD, from what I've seen, actually. Gina's boyfriend, Fred Cristotomi, very sadly perished in the fire. Another survivor named Robert Feeney recounts his trauma of that night at the station. He says, quote, It was also the night me and my girlfriend had decided that we were going to tell her friends that we were engaged. When the band took the stage, I saw the pyro. Right away, me and Donna were like, wow, it's not 1986. You know you don't need pyro in a small venue like this. We're here for the music, not the flashy show. Just seconds later, I was looking. The wall was on fire. I expected it to go out by either sprinklers or a fire extinguisher. So we started heading towards the exit next to the stage. Then one of the bouncers grabbed Donna by the shoulders and held her back into me and told her, that was for the band only and that we had to wait to get out the front door, Robert was able to make it out alive. His fiance tragically did not make it and burned to death. So we have another instance where the bouncer was turning people away from the stage exit. Honestly, the only explanation I can come up with for why someone would keep everybody locked in an incinerator like this is that he must have also been completely oblivious to this life-threatening emergency. He probably just assumed it was all part of the show. Now, that being said, I am in no way, shape, or form making excuses for this person. By him blocking off this exit, it would appear that he indirectly sealed many fatalities. Anyway, moving on. A fireman at the blazing scene recounts his chilling experience attempting to save a burn victim who was breathing. He says, quote, It was the first time I ever referred to a person as an it. But you couldn't tell. You could tell it obviously was a person, but the injuries were such that you couldn't decipher male from female. I couldn't imagine, and I hate to say it, but I couldn't imagine the brain surviving that kind of heat in the skull, let alone what she inhaled, let alone the amount of burn she had. So my ride was where I sat on the floor because her head was down. With one hand I was holding hers and then I was praying. I was praying that someone wouldn't make it. Just looking at the totality of this young woman's injuries and the fact that modern medicine is where it's at, the potential for her surviving was greater than where I had wanted it to be. And I know that sounds terrible. She needed to be out of there 10-15 to minutes sooner or we needed to be there 15 minutes later and I've never prayed like that before. Even to this day, to imagine dedicating my life to helping people and sitting on the floor praying that someone would go, it's not something you usually do. My faith has wandered. I have a hard time now thinking of God and heaven. Unquote. The victim that he tried to save was named Linda Sofoletto. She died from her critical injuries. This fireman, who I can only assume has seen plenty of burn victims over his career of fighting fire, renounced his faith in a higher being, just based off this one person. That says it all, in my opinion, about what the horror of that night was. Another survivor explains what she thought should have been different that evening. Quote, If there had been sprinklers, it wouldn't have happened that way. If there was a fire extinguisher on stage, it probably wouldn't have happened the way it happened. If there wasn't so many people in there, if more people knew other exits that were available... So it's like if you can change one thing in that situation that night, we probably wouldn't have had lost 100 people, unquote. So it took five and a half minutes for the whole venue to go up in flames. A fire expert named James Gulliview explains, quote, They found very quickly that the burning foam walls caused a flashover event in this testing facility in under one minute. He goes on, a flashover is an accumulation of superheated gas at the ceiling, and when it reaches a certain temperature, all combustibles in the room will spontaneously combust. The combustibles in the nightclub would be the furnishings, the wall coverings, the floor material, and unfortunately, even the people. Unquote. So, even people under these specific conditions in a closed setting can spontaneously combust. Wow, you learn something new every day. Interestingly enough, on the night of the fire, the club was legally required to have a sprinkler system, but as already stated, it did not. Here is another interesting eerie fact. A cameraman named Brian Butler, who worked for WPRI-TV of Providence, filmed the whole tragedy from the start of the pyrotechnics to the club burning down. What is interesting about this is that Butler was there for the sole purpose of filming a piece on nightclub safety, which was going to be reported by Jeffrey Dudarium, who, you guessed it, also happened to be part owner of the station nightclub. The reason this piece was going to be done at this particular time for the station was in direct response to the E2 nightclub stampede disaster, which happened three days prior to the station fire, or on February 17, 2003 few things wrong with this setup, which I would like to discuss for a moment. One, there's a blatant conflict of interest, since the one doing the reporting also just happens to be the owner of the club. And two, you have a cameraman there to film how safe the nightclub is, only to be filming the fourth deadliest nightclub fire in U.S. history, such a chain reaction of weird and tragic events. Now, if you're mature enough, and of the appropriate age, you can easily find the footage I just mentioned previously. That being said, I wouldn't recommend it. It's unbelievably horrific. Uh, Think Last Days of Pompeii, or the book Hiroshima by John Hershey. Interestingly enough, actually, there is a parallel between Hiroshima and this event. As mentioned from previous accounts of the station fire, victims recall a quote-unquote black rain coming down as the club was going up in smoke. In Hershey's 1946 book Hiroshima, there are accounts of surviving victims of a radioactive rain coming down from the clouds, also being called, quote unquote, Black Rain. There was even a 1965 book entitled Black Rain by Masuji Aibu. Of course, they are very different in nature. One is radioactive and the other isn't, but still, nonetheless, kind of interesting from my perspective. Okay, so the tour manager of Great White, Daniel Beachill, confessed to 100 counts of involuntary manslaughter on February 7th, 2006, against his lawyer's advice. Beachel also went on record apologizing adamantly to the victims and the victims' families without any intention to deny his guilt. He was sentenced on May 10, 2006 to 15 years in prison, with four to serve and 11 years suspended, plus three years probation. Some victims' family felt he should be paroled based on his complete honesty of guilt and reached out to the Rhode Island Parole Board. They released him on March 19, 2008. Michael and Jeffrey Dudarium, the owners of the station nightclub, changed their pleas from not guilty to no contest. Michael received the same exact sentence as Daniel Beachel, while Jeffrey Dudarium received a 10-year suspended sentence, three years probation, and 500 hours of community service. Michael Dudarium was released June of 2009. As would be expected, there were various settlements between the victim's the victims' families, the band, the venue, the state, the owners of the flammable acoustic phone, and many other outlets that had a hand in this blazing destruction. I'm not going to discuss all of this in detail, but if anybody's interested, it can be found easily. Surprisingly, Great White, the band, is still together. Uh, and that's pretty pretty incredible, actually. All right, so now we're down to my final thoughts on this very, very depressing topic. I mean, there really isn't much more to say that hasn't already been stated in one form or another. The stage manager and the owners of the venue really f***ed up. There really is no excuse for these types of tragedies, and this is solely my opinion just speaking now, but arguably the owners actually screwed up even more than Beachel from how I see it. It really goes without saying that it's the owner's responsibility to ensure their patrons are safe from negligent disasters like this. But instead, there were many fire hazards. They definitely weren't up to fire code with the absence of a sprinkler system, clearly indicated fire extinguishers, clearly marked exits, going over the maximum capacity for the club, and not having their employees educated in fire safety. Also, by saying this, I'm in no way excusing Beachel for his misconduct. He made a very fatal mistake. And the real sad fact of this is I'm sure Beachel was just trying to give the audience a show that they would never forget, with zero intention of hurting anyone. Unfortunately, there is a Chinese saying slash curse, and it goes like this. Be careful what you wish for. You may get it. And sadly, he did, just not in the way he expected. There's just so many things wrong with this tragedy. It's literally hard to stay on one point, really. Anyway, good people, this is where I'm going to sign off. If you have any suggestions for a topic you want me to discuss for a future episode, please let me know. If you enjoyed this episode, go to iTunes or Stitcher and leave a five-star review. Also, don't forget to subscribe on Stitcher, iTunes, or your favorite listening app. This is Strange Music Stories, or rather, this episode in this episode's case, Strange Horror Music Stories. Bad joke, sorry. I'm your host, Chris. Till the next topic later.